Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, Truman, your next you, question, you had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. And I am not going to ask Canadians to pay the price. You had an option, sir, to say no. And you chose to say yes I... to the old attitudes and the old stories of the Liberal Party. That, sir, if I may say respectfully, that is not good enough for Canadians. I had no option if I was able that to... Is that is an avowal of failure. That is a confession I... of non-leadership. And this country needs leadership. You had an option, sir. You had an option, sir. One of the defining moments of the 1984 election that brought Brian Mulroney and his PC party to a massive majority in the House of Commons. Really looking back, it's seen in, in Canadian political history uh, as one of the defining moments, certainly of any political debate uh, of the modern era. Uh, so Brian Mulroney, look, was a very consequential prime minister. Uh, you look at free trade, you look at the GST, you look at apartheid, uh, you know, there, there's a whole list of, of areas where he definitely made his mark and got a lot done. Elected in 1984, re-elected in 1988, bowed out in 1992 and saw his party decimated in the 1993 election. We saw more recently with the renegotiation of NAFTA, though, Brian Mulroney come back to the forefront, uh, really in a much more statesmanlike role. Uh, so we learned yesterday that uh, Mr. Mulroney had passed away at the age of 84. There's been all kinds of tributes and reaction pouring in since then. And we'll get to more of that today. And I want to talk more about Mulroney's legacy and his impact. And what made him such a strong politician, such a great deal maker. A great piece uh, up at theglobeandmail.com on this aspect uh, of Brian Mulroney's uh, impact and legacy. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is the author of that piece, uh, author and writer at large for The Globe and Mail, John Ibbotson. Uh, much more at theglobeandmail.com. John, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here, Rob. Uh, it is interesting to see the reaction coming from right across the political spectrum. I mean, Justin Trudeau with some warm words today, even Jean Chrétien uh, getting to a microphone to talk about uh, his old foe, Brian Mulroney. What do you make of, you know, just that, that kind of consensus that we're, we're seeing today about Mulroney's impact? Well, uh, and I'm also going to be putting in a plug for tomorrow's column because this is what I'm writing about for the Global Mail tomorrow. It reminded me of the great difference between the legacy of a political leader and the reputation of that leader when they leave office. Mm -hmm. You may remember that uh, when Pierre Trudeau took his famous walk in the snow on, on the leap year in uh, 1994, uh, 1984, he was a deeply unpopular prime minister. Um, and yet at his funeral in 2000, um, he was he was lauded as the man who had saved us, from, kept the country together, give, given us a new constitution, given us the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And, of course, a young Justin Trudeau made a famous speech at that funeral, essentially launching his own political career. Um, Brian Mulroney followed Pierre Trudeau, huge, massive majority government. Um, uh, but he left, uh, with, I was just looking at the polls, he left, when he left, the progressive conservatives were at or below 20% in the mm -hmm. polls. He was the most disliked prime minister in Canadian history up until that point. Um, and so, uh, and yet when he passed away yesterday, as you said, uh, political foes, people from all parts of, uh, of political life in this country, people from overseas, 
praised him as one of Canada's great modern prime ministers. And I think it might be something that Justin Trudeau can take as consolation because he's about as unpopular as Brian Mulroney was, <laughs> yeah. Pierre Trudeau was, uh, when they when they left. Um, but we can't know what Justin Trudeau's legacy is going to be. Certainly, Brian Mulroney has taught us that the day you leave politics is not the last word on what people decide uh, your career was like as a political leader. Well, some of it is the passing of time, but I think a lot of it is to, to see how that legacy is shaped in the coming decades. As devi- divisive as free trade was, you know, you look at the 1988 election, there's a real consensus that it's been great for Canada, right? As, as polarizing as the GST was, I think it's widely acknowledged that, you know, that, that that's a valuable taxation tool. No one's really moved to, to, to get rid of that. So I do wonder if, you know, sort of that acceptance of those measures has contributed to how his reputation was rehabilitated? Absolutely. Uh, on the GST, which was hugely unpopular. You remember the fights on the floor of the Senate over the GST? And Mulroney always used to say afterwards that I uh, I, I sowed the field and mm-hmm. uh, Paul Martin reaped the harvest. And he was right. Uh, the GST was uh, instrumental in allowing the federal government to balance its budget. It's still a major source of revenue to this day. It's still not very popular to this day either, but it is a necessary tax if there is such a thing. So, yeah, where you look at what Brian Mulroney achieved, um, the environmental measures, he was given very little credit for them at the time, but now he's been praised as the greenest prime minister in Canada's history, um, fighting uh, hydrocarbons, um, fighting, getting the acid rain treaty signed, other uh, treaties to um, protect the uh, land and, and water in Canada and North, and North America. Um, and the beginning, the, the first conference ever uh, to address the issue of global warming. Those were all Brian Mulroney achievements. He, we weren't looking at them at the time as that significant, but given where we are today in the fight against global warming and, you know, and generally the environmental issues, uh, we recognize that he made huge achievements in, in those fields. So, yes, your, your, your point is very valid. It takes time uh, to understand uh, whether a legacy is valid or invalid, no matter whose legacy that is. We talk about Brian Mulroney as a deal maker, and part of what you talk about in your piece. Um, you know, what, what makes someone a, a good deal maker, and how was Brian Mulroney able to succeed in that sense? Well, everybody who knew Brian Mulroney, journalists as well as political leaders, uh, knew that this was a man who, when he looked at you, could get you to believe that no one else in the world matters except you. Um, he was uh, a man who was as good as his word. He, he would, it's something he never broke. He was the kind of person who always knew uh, to phone um, when he heard that perhaps a relative had passed or you had been ill. Um, his, you know, part of his caucus fled to form the Reform Party. Right. Um, the other part of the caucus fled to form the Party Quebecois, uh, the Bloc, Bloc Quebecois, excuse me. Uh, that, that too is part of his legacy. But those who stayed were profoundly loyal to him uh, to the very end. He had the ability to, to get people to trust him, and that included premiers during, uh, at least most of them, during the Meech Lake and Charlottetown Accords. I think that was his great skill as, as a dealmaker. People People wanted to agree with Brian Mulroney. They, they wanted to get to where he wanted to go. You mentioned Meech Lake and Charlottetown, and I, I guess we could call those failures. I, I think maybe part of Mulroney's legacy is a greater realization of how difficult all of that is, or maybe even what a can of worms it can be to, to reopen the Constitution. We've largely stayed away with it since then. So how does that fit into his legacy, do you think? <clears throat> well, it's not a positive part of the legacy, but... Um, I mean, he he devoted a great deal of his two administrations 
to constitutional reform. And all he got for it in the end was the failure of Meech, uh, the, the failure of the referendum on Charlottetown. And the country uh, got a near-death experience in 1995 uh, with the referendum on separation. Um, it led, though, in the end to the Clarity Act uh, and the Supreme Court uh, ruling uh, setting out the, the terms for the possible uh, leaving uh, of uh, for possible terms for province leaving the country. And, and that is a part of Mulroney's legacy as well as uh, Jean Chrétien's legacy. Um, today, separation is not uh, at the top of the agenda quietly drifting away maybe at the, at the top of the agenda, but not separation. Um, so Brian Mulroney could take some of the credit for keeping the country together, although in balance, I don't think that's the positive side of the ledger. We look globally, and I think today, you know, we, we sort of struggle with, you know, Canada's place in the world. Have we lost uh, influence? Uh, Brian Mulroney certainly had that. I mean, his friendship with Ronald Reagan helped. But, I mean, you know, on, on something like South African apartheid, he very much differed with, with Ronald Reagan in how to approach it. So how do we assess his, his global impact? Oh, I think next to uh, Lester Pearson, he um, was the most important prime minister in terms of Canada's relations to the world. Uh, you mentioned that he took a leading role in opposing apartheid, even though both Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan uh, didn't really see that as an issue that they wanted to pursue. Um, he led the Commonwealth in that sense against British opposition. He was also instrumental um, in help, again, behind the scenes more often than in front of it, uh, but in helping in the negotiations that led to the reunification of Germany and uh, the dismantling of the Soviet Union. He was a, a, a good ally of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush in that as well, and played an important role in, in the Cold War. It's important to remember as, uh, the Cold War, in the, um, uh, the, the, the Gulf War, excuse me. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember as well that he was the last prime minister who sustained our military spending at 2% of GDP. Uh, we haven't reached it since, and uh, we've paid the price for it in terms of a deteriorating military. So I think, along with Lester Pearson, uh, Brian Mulroney could be given uh, major credit for asserting Canada's role in the world. Well, much more is mentioned in your piece. It's up today, theglobeandmail.com. We'll watch for your follow-up uh, tomorrow, John. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rob. All the best. Take care. John Ibbotson is an author, writer-at-large uh, at the Globe and Mail. Great piece today on uh, Brian Mulroney's political impact. And it is interesting to see, you know, just the, the outpouring of a very emotional kind of response, uh, very warm words about Brian Mulroney. What his time was divisive and, and unpopular, even uh, amongst conservatives. Of course, you know, during his time in office, the Reform Party was founded. Uh, even once the conservative movement came back together, once details emerged about the Airbus scandal or Brian Mulroney's dealings with Carl Heinz Schreiber, he kind of became a bit of a pariah again. And that was back during uh, the, the Harper years. Uh, but, but I think largely that was forgiven. Is that fair to say? Or I think at least maybe as time has passed, it's become more about what he accomplished, what his legacy was, and free trade being a big part of that. So we'll talk more about Brian Mulroney's legacy, get to some of the reaction as well today with Pierre Polyev, Justin Trudeau, Jean Chrétien, Peter McKay, and others had to say today. I do believe that we're, we're probably, probably in a, a bit of a sweet spot, if, if you want to call it that. Uh, but I think it's, it's a pretty reasonable budget. We called it a responsible plan for a growing province. Uh, we're doing multiple things. We're you know, investing in, in infrastructure while uh, focusing on savings, um, prioritizing health care and education.
That's Finance Minister Nate Horner on this morning with Shea Gannon. I'm talking about the budget he presented in the Alberta legislature yesterday, calling it responsible budget, a reasonable plan, or maybe it was a reasonable budget, responsible plan, uh, kind of the same thing. So does everybody agree? I guess you're never really going to get universal agreement on any budget. But it is interesting for a lot of reasons, especially coming off the uh, televised address last week. The Alberta government purchased airtime so that the premier could set the stage for this budget and subsequent budgets. But does this budget anyway meet the rhetoric that we heard last week? about the importance of being much more restrained in our spending, the importance of getting off of our reliance on oil and gas revenue, the importance of not doing this through newer, higher taxes. Because after all, I mean, this is a budget that does increase spending. In fact, it increases the pace of spending beyond what was forecast in the budget last year. It's a budget that increases our reliance on oil and gas revenue, at least this year. And yes, it is a budget that brings higher debt, by the way, but also uh, in the form of uh, new and higher taxes. So is, is that okay with everybody? Are we comfortable with all of that? You know, the premier and the finance minister talk about a lot of work still to be done in the years ahead. And of course, the goal here is to ultimately build up the heritage fund to the point where Interest from that fund can replace oil and gas revenue. Now, interest uh, from the fund is being left in it, but there is no new money set aside uh, to add to the size of the fund. So joining us uh, for some analysis uh, of all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program off the top of this afternoon, Trevor Toome, Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy. Trevor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, as we kind of look at the backdrop of this budget, first of all, everything Alberta is dealing with, you know, economic growth, population growth, oil, gas prices, all of that. Are we seeing anything change fundamentally? Like, does the backdrop now look any different than it did a, a year ago? Yeah, it, it looks slightly more favorable, right? 2023, because of interest rates, primarily uh, economic growth here slowed, of course, relative to what it otherwise would have been. But the population growth that we're seeing is a financial benefit to the province mm-hmm. you know, because where income tax payments go depends on where people are living as of the end of the year. So if we look back to what we thought we would be bringing in in terms of tax revenues this year, uh, previously, prior to the budget, we thought this year would have $27 billion in tax revenue. Uh, but this budget comes out with 286 so right there alone is a one over one and a half billion dollar lift to just tax revenue, and a lot of that is due to population flows into the province. Very interesting. Now, when we look at the you know the, the spending side, and and that's an interesting story. You know, we had a, a speech recently from the premier that was maybe sort of meant to set the stage for perhaps a, a consequential budget, but. You know, the, the talk about restraint, I don't know, maybe a little bit at odds with what we saw yesterday. What, what are we seeing on the spending side? Yeah, that's a great question. That's certainly my impression that the content of the budget was a little at odds with what the premier presented in her address. Uh, uh, last week. So previously, the government in its most recent fiscal update in November, you know, really confirming last year's budget plans, were to grow operating spending uh, by 1.8% this year. So that was the budget 2023 plan. But budget 2024, we're now looking to grow spending this year by 3.8%. 
0.9%. So we're, we've increased operating spending just a little over $2 billion this year, above and beyond the growth that we were already planning for uh, in the last budget plans uh, of the province. What we've done is accelerated the pace of spending growth. And, and we've done that in a, in a lot of ministries, health, of course, mm-hmm. uh, but education and advanced education as well have seen considerable unplanned increases in spending in those areas. So it's an interesting budget because uh, what the premier was signaling before was um, a budget of spending restraint in order to ease our reliance on volatile resource revenues. But we we actually saw quite the opposite move by the government in this budget. And I don't mean that as a critique. It's fair enough. There's certainly health pressures and and other issues that the government's accommodating. But... um, but but to go forward with spending increases when previously saying restraint was necessary, and as an aside, why we needed to delay the income tax cut, mm-hmm. um, that that we're not seeing here. We're effectively using the space created by the income tax cut delay in order to fund uh, the spending increase that we are seeing in this budget. And further to that point that the premier made about the reliance on energy revenues, I mean, we're continuing that reliance. I guess, arguably, looking at this budget, you could say we're we're actually increasing that reliance. So I do think that's the case, and you can calculate this in lots of different ways. You know, we're anticipating seventeen point three billion in resource revenues coming into the province, and that's roughly where we were anticipating resource revenues were going to be this year last year. So no real change at all mm-hmm. in terms of how much resource revenues we have. But the surplus was previously projected at over $2 billion and now is just a razor thin $367 million. So we've ratcheted up uh, spending while resource revenues have not changed. And what that effectively means is now we need a higher oil price in order to balance the books. I estimate last year, uh, 2023's fiscal year, we needed about $68 per barrel to balance. Uh, this year, it looks like we need about 73 So, it, So in a sense, we've ratcheted up our reliance because we need $5 higher per barrel oil prices in order to make the math work. I think we got above eighty dollars today, but uh, you know that could yeah, be a bit of a roller coaster. Holds, the yes. surplus could be uh, <laughs> you know, considerable, four to five billion actually. Uh, as for the Heritage Fund, and this is something else the Premier has talked about, and, and maybe trying to get the Heritage Fund to, to where it could have been, perhaps with different policy choices in recent decades. But interestingly, even though, as I understand it, there's some money from last year's fiscal year that's going into the Heritage Fund, it doesn't look like there's anything earmarked for this fiscal year. That's right. So we will see uh, what's called the Alberta Fund, uh, which is kind of a parking lot for unused cash from previous years. Uh, some of that goes to debt repayment, but a chunk of that will go about $2 billion to Heritage Fund contributions. So, th- so that's that's certainly not nothing. That's a considerable increase. That alone is about a 10% boost to the size of the fund. Mm-hmm. The bigger change to how we approach that fund is by not using the income that it generates for operations. So we're retaining the investment returns. And that might not sound like a lot, but... You know, compound interest is a powerful force over a longer time horizons. And so if we just maintain that, if we just retain income in the fund, then plausibly in 25 years time, you know, the 2050 target that the government is talking about, we could have $175 billion in the fund just from that alone based on historical returns. 
And that's almost at the 250 goal that the government uh, and the premier laid out in her address last week. So retaining income, you know, I don't want to, uh, I, I guess, say that's uh, insignificant uh, policy change that will add up to a considerable change in the size of the fund over time. But what it means to make all that work is that we'll be borrowing money uh, to make up for the cash that we're saving in the Heritage Fund. And, you know, the interest rates on government borrowing is typically less than the returns on the Heritage Fund. So it's a bet that can work Mm -hmm. most years. Um, you know, but there's some political communications challenges there when you're borrowing uh, funds, as this budget is doing, to pay for things that we would have otherwise have used that income for. Right. And that's the income that fund generates each year. I think people mm-hmm. maybe get that confused. We haven't actually withdrawn from the principle of the fund, but each year the, the revenue that or the interest revenue that it generates, that goes into general revenues typically? That's right. Yeah. So the income that the fund previously generates, we just take that off the top. And so that eliminates the ability for compound returns to really manifest themselves. And compound interest is, is really powerful. Things can grow quite large uh, if you let that process uh, work. And just skimming off the top all the returns that the fund generates you know, basically has meant the fund has been stagnant for so many years. And, and, and worse than that, when there are years of financial losses, think about the financial crisis or uh, you know, COVID, uh, we don't make up for those losses. So the fund kind of gradually ratchets down in its uh, real value over time. And so retaining income, that's a big change in policy. Although Ms. one, Yen. I should say, Premier Kenny uh, enacted, not, uh, right. not new to this budget. As you alluded to, though, if, if there is some discipline here in keeping that interest in the fund, adding to the principle of the fund, the idea of $250 billion or more by 2050 is, is not unrealistic. Absolutely not. It's entirely realistic. Uh, it, it, what we need for that $175 billion result is just an average return of about 8 which is what the Heritage Fund has earned over the past decade. You know, who knows where it goes in the future, but an 8% return is not unreasonable. And just the, 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 the math of compounding over 25 years really leads to a big increase in the size of that fund. And so to get to 250, you know, the government's goal, it doesn't take much else. Uh, and, and over time, if we do have spending restraint below population plus inflation, then surpluses in future years ought to start growing and there will be volatility year to year of course but if those surpluses do grow and we save a portion of them consistently then achieving a 250 billion dollar fund is entirely in the cards um so but unfortunately we didn't see any plan to that effect in this budget which is also what i found pretty surprising there's literally nothing in right. here about fulfilling the government's commitment to get off the resource roller coaster so we'll see if they follow through with some details which they now say will come later on this year so i guess something to look forward to in the fall well that's the thing i mean even bigger picture is there a long-term strategy here we see the mixed messages maybe between some of the rhetoric and the reality uh moving away even from from an established fiscal framework does this budget give us any certainty as to to what to expect in the years ahead So it it doesn't. One aspect of this budget that I was looking for was clarity around how this Alberta fund would be used in the future. This is, uh, as I noted, a fund where we park any kind of leftover cash. But it's 
flexible in how it can be used. You can use it for debt repayment. You can use it for savings. You can use it for one-time spending initiatives. Uh, think about things like like the arena. So it's pretty flexible, mm-hmm. things that you can just throw that money out the door into. There's no constraint on how much the government must save out of that fund in the future. Indeed, we're looking now at the next three years of having nothing in the Alberta fund at all. And so there was nothing in the budget that provides any clarity around how much the government actually plans to save from future surpluses. That was a big missing piece. We'll see how the discussion goes in the coming days and weeks around all of this. Uh, Trevor, thanks for your insight and input. Really appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. You bet. My pleasure. Take care. Hey, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breganrich with you here. A final hour this week. Uh, we'll check in later with uh, Sarah Crosby. Find out what's coming up this afternoon on Connect with Sarah Crosby. Got a few other things we'll get to. More time for your calls and texts as well. 403-974-8255. So it was an interesting day at the Alberta legislature yesterday. We got a budget. Uh, we've talked about the budget. We can get back to that conversation as well about some of the big picture items around this budget, revenue, spending, uh, taxes, heritage fund, all of that. One aspect of the budget uh, that, that jumps out to a lot of people and I think will prove somewhat polarizing here is a, a new tax, a new tax on new electric vehicles. Now, electric vehicles have become a bit, bit of a political football lately. The federal government has some pretty ambitious targets. They want all vehicles sold by 2035 uh, to be zero emission vehicles, which I think is going to be a challenge given a lot of the signals we're getting from from some of the manufacturers. Uh, But nonetheless, we are seeing more electric vehicles on the market, more uptake in Canada, even here in Alberta. The Alberta government argues, though, that, look, we still got to pay for roads. Gasoline vehicles, well, those drivers pay the gasoline excise tax, which is now back in effect. Uh, But drivers of electric vehicles don't pay that. So where's their contribution to road maintenance? So the province says this will cover that. That's what this is intended to be. But it, it seems like it's caught up in a lot of the back and forth between Alberta and Ottawa on some other issues. Now, related to that, there was a Sovereignty Act motion that had been introduced some months ago by the government that passed the legislature yesterday. Now, this may take us down the path of uh, the creation of a crown corporation, a natural gas crown corporation, uh, to to fight with Ottawa, maybe over the carbon tax or perhaps down the road on clean electricity regulations. We see what's happening right now with Saskatchewan and the carbon tax and their crown corporation. So joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here, Andrew Leach, energy and environmental economist, professor of economics and law at the University of Alberta. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. As we try to figure out what the Sovereignty Act motion might be about, we've got what's happening with Saskatchewan as a backdrop and maybe a bit of a hint or a clue. Saskatchewan now says it's going to not actually even remit carbon tax revenue to Ottawa, which I guess technically <laughs> violates the law. Uh, what do you make of this standoff and, and where this might all be going here? Well, I think we really are into probably uncharted territory or at least uncharted in the last 40 to 50 years territory of this type of a face-off between provincial and federal governments, and in particular, you know, provincial governments, provincial crown agencies, direct, openly violating um, federal law. I think that's uh, that's pretty as close as we can come to uncharted territory. And then, you know, you have the question in Alberta of 
the Sovereignty Act and, you know, what actually will it do and, you know, how the differences between Saskatchewan's crown uh, crown corporation-based energy sector, particularly natural gas, and Alberta's uh, competitive sector change the game for, for us here in Alberta. So lots of questions, not a, a ton of answers so far. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of politics here, and I think there are conservatives in Alberta who are looking at uh, Scott Moe, and wow, he's standing up to, to Ottawa. He's you know not collecting the carbon tax on home heating. Why isn't Alberta doing this? Why isn't Danielle Smith doing this? And as you alluded to, I mean, she can't because we don't have a crown corporation that supplies home heating unless we create one. Yeah, and and I think there you have not not only that we don't have one, but you also have private companies that have that right. exclusive natural gas distribution right within the province. So ADCO, for example, over over much of the province. And so, in order for the provincial government to insert itself into that, there would have to be uh, some form of credible claim that. It is the crown, in fact, that is the distributor of natural gas in the province of Alberta. And, and you know, as as widespread and influential as ADCO is, I don't think they're they're an agent of the crown of, of the crown and right of Alberta. No. And I mean, there's also the clean electricity regulation. So maybe it's not just about natural gas on the home heating side, but also when it comes to electricity generation, that maybe we create a crown corporation. Maybe we decide that that crown corporation doesn't have to follow any of these federal standards. But Again, a competitive market, again, where there are private uh, companies not just providing natural gas-generated electricity, but adding more capacity. What about that side? Yeah, well, I think you have much the same answer there, which is the clean electricity regulations do not bind on Alberta. They bind on individual generating assets um, that may, you know, almost regardless of ownership. So... In terms of uh, a crown utility openly defying that, I think it would be different than, uh, you know, different story again from a crown utility openly defying the um, openly defying the, the carbon pricing legislation. But it's it's still going to create a largely unprecedented situation. In Alberta, you have the main generating utilities and a lot of smaller generating units. And it's those companies themselves that are that are bound by it. So even if Alberta were to create a crown corporation, it's not clear how that crown corp would come to be uh, the regulated agent under the regulated person under the clean electricity regulations. Right. And maybe there's there's some politics that, you know, the, the province or the premier is viewing all of this through. But I mean, economically, does does it make any sense? For us to have a crown corporation, right, and and to just throw all that that uncertainty in into the electricity market. Yeah, well, I think I think you're seeing some of this in you know, the the way that renewables, in particular, affect a market like Alberta's or like you're seeing in Texas, where we have market structures that essentially say we'll pay we'll pay you for energy. You show up any hour, any day of the year with energy, we'll pay you the market price for it, but we're mm-hmm. not going to put any requirements on you for reliability. So we're not demanding that you be there at a particular point in time. We're not paying anybody to be on standby or to have capacity there other than the very short term. And so when you add in a lot of renewables into the market, it's not so much that the renewables aren't there when it's 
cold and dark that's the that's the problem for the other players in the market it's that they are there in a lot of other hours and so if you were looking at building a natural gas facility as there's more wind and as there's more solar and as uh, as these these uh renewable sources grow you end up with fewer and fewer hours in which you're able to make uh, a return on your investment. Mm-hmm. And in Alberta, we still have the same maximum hourly price that we've had in nominal dollar terms since 2000 and well, since the early 2000s, the, the original deregulation. And so if you say, well, great, I'm there when, the, when Alberta really needs the electricity and I get paid exactly the same price as I did in 2003 for that electricity, it's becoming a less and less interesting business venture. And if you decrease the number of hours where the market's tight and decrease the number of hours when you can get those revenues, it becomes more and more challenging to operate or to, to think about building a new a new natural gas asset. So what the premier has, has said is, and the governor of Texas is having exactly the same challenges, is, you know what, if the market's not there to build these, we're going to step in and build them. We're going to step in and build something that will ensure, um, ensure reliability. And that's new, but it's also... Something that was present in the regulations and the legislation already, which was to say that the ASO, the grid operator, could always have stepped in and said, you know what, for reliability reasons, the actions we have to take are to procure a new natural gas plant. And that's, you know, that's the only way we can assure Albertans reliability. We're going to do it. And there are some who probably wondered earlier this year whether they should have done it a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, as it pertains to, to electrification, electric vehicles, uh, the budget brings in a new tax on electric vehicles. Now, maybe this is a way of sticking it to the feds once again. They like electric vehicles, so we don't. Maybe there's a legitimate point about how we're going to pay for roads if, if people aren't paying the gas tax. But I don't know. What, what did you make of that? Well, I think like, like most other actions that seem to come from this government, there's, you know, I, I joked about it yesterday being government by concern troll. <laughs> um, so, you know, you can look at it and say, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt that really what you're concerned about is having um, a pot of funds with which to pay for road maintenance and that as electric vehicles take over, uh, there will be fewer fewer and fewer fuel tax dollars flowing into the provincial provincial coffers in order to fund some of these uh, some of this road maintenance and upgrades, and you know EVs are using the roads, and so it's only fair that that, that they pay their pay their share of of that road maintenance. And on its face, that's a reasonable reason why you might have a weight based registration fee or a fuel tax or some combination of the two to to pay for road maintenance. But when you wrap it up and you say, you know, this is a government that has previously been fairly bearish on electric vehicles, they're saying they don't work here. And then you read the numbers and say, well, they've got eight percent year, or sorry, sixty percent year over year growth in electric vehicle sales uh, in their budget numbers. It sort of says, well, you know, maybe they're not quite being consistent here. And there's there's certainly has to be a little bit of uh, we're going to you know we're sort of thumbing our nose at Ottawa again yeah. on this. You know, two hundred dollars a year is going to really disrupt the the trend of of EV adoption. Probably not. Uh, but it's uh, it certainly, I think, has a little bit of that element of, of we're thumbing our nose at uh, Minister Gilbo again. Right. Whether it impacts demand, I guess, remains to be seen. Do you think it's intended to reduce demand? 
Um, well, <laughs> I, I'd be very interested to hear from from some people who consistently tell us the carbon pricing won't reduce the uh, the generation of emissions to see what they, they'd say about yeah. uh, the impact of this on, on electric vehicle adoption. But, you know, I think at the margin, right, this is part of your calculation to say if I'm looking at a four-year payback for an electric vehicle and I'm comparing my charging costs um, to what would otherwise be my gasoline costs and right. thinking about all the other aspects of it, you just put, you know, on four years, eight hundred dollars against the uh, on on the against the EV calc in this case. So, yeah, there are going to be some people for whom that's enough to tip the scales. It's not, you know, it's not two thousand dollars. It's two hundred. So mm-hmm. it's it's not going to change everybody's calculus of this. But it, there are going to be some that it will change. We'll see how this all plays out. We'll leave it there for now. Andrew, appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. There you go. That's uh, Andrew Leach, energy and environmental economist, professor of economics and law at the University of Alberta. So what do you make of this electric vehicle tax? Is this just a tax? It's a revenue grab? Or is there some level of fairness here when it comes to uh, public use of roads and public funds to pay to build and maintain those roads? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.